Good morning. My name is Mark. I'm one of the pastors on staff here at Calvary. I'm often at the Erie campus, uh, but here this morning, Perry Marshall was actually originally going to be here this morning to open the word, but he is not feeling well right now and was unable to be here. You can be praying for him. In the grand scheme, he's doing okay and he's going to bounce back, um, but he was unable to be here and missed being here with you all this morning. I uh, love being here, though, in Boulder. I did about six years of student ministry here and love this community. I'm just grateful to worship together and open God's word together. Today, we're going to be at the end of Luke 11. So the end, very end of Luke 11. Now, inside of the church and outside the church, in our broader culture, we have a sense of what it means to be righteous. And we don't always use the word righteous. Uh, sometimes we'll use the word just. You could interchange those words to be a righteous person, to be a just person, someone who seeks justice. Sometimes we say being a good person or a moral person in, a, in our broader cultural context. Now, within the church, if we think about what is a righteous person, you might think of someone who's humble, who loves the people around them, who walks with the Lord, who prays and opens the word of God and, and lives their life shaped by his word, who seeks justice, cares for the vulnerable. In our broader culture, though, we also have a sense of what does it mean to be a righteous person, whether we would always use that language or not. We have a sense of what, what is a good moral person. I mean, we're coming up on a season where we have elections, and you're going to hear all sorts of stir and different discussions about what is the righteous or the just thing to do. And if you were to talk to multiple people, I'm sure you'd get different views of what does it mean to be righteous or just? What, what is true justice look like? Or if you were to think on the negative aspect, in our culture, we know that there's things that people are afraid of being exposed for, to have this sense of unrighteousness, this shame, this exposure. And as you look at that, you can see there's, there's, there is some sense of what does it mean to be a righteous person, a good person? Yet there's often competing visions of what it really means to be righteous. And that's no different than the text we're going to look at this morning where we're going to look at two competing views of what it means to be righteous. We're going to look at the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and we're going to look at the righteousness of the religious leaders of his day. And what we're going to see in this passage is that the religious leaders are actually going to reject Jesus and his righteousness due to their pride, their greed, their love of people's approval and money and possessions, and their own sense of self-righteousness, thinking that they actually don't need Jesus. They don't need this teacher to come in. And so what we're going to do as we look at this text, we're going to look at these two views of righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus, the righteousness of the religious leaders. And coming out of it, what we really want to ask and what we want to process is when we're confronted with Jesus and his righteousness this morning, how do we respond? Do, do we respond in a place of humility, recognizing our need for Christ, or, or do we push away, and reject. And so we'll end as we address that question. But if you have your Bibles, we're going to start in Luke 11, verses 37 to 38. And we get this story that kind of kicks off this text in this section for us. Luke eleven thirty-seven says this, while Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. Now, this is a meal invitation by a Pharisee, and a Pharisee was a religious leader. 
who was known for how well they observed the Mosaic law. They were these people who would observe and follow and obey God's law. And there was this pride around the way that they saw themselves as being so holy and clean and righteous. But notice what happens. The Pharisee is astonished when he sees Jesus. And he's not astonished, as we might expect, to see that Jesus is so righteous. But what he's actually astonished at is that Jesus appears to him to be unrighteous. That Jesus doesn't wash his hands before the meal in the way that he expects. Now, this isn't hand washing like you would do if you're working on your car or if you were uh, out playing in the dirt and you come in and wash your hands to get all the dirt off. That's, that's the hand washing that we would be familiar with. But this is more of a religious ceremonial type of hand washing about purifying yourself, dedicating yourself to the Lord. And so this Pharisee is surprised that Jesus doesn't wash his hands. But this washing, it's important to know, was not a washing that was commanded by God's word, but it was actually a washing that the religious leaders had added, an additional onto the word of God, a type of washing that they began to expect. And they began to put on the same level as God's word, that they would expect that a truly righteous person, a truly religious person will observe all these extra commands that we've added to the word of God. But Jesus, quite honestly, doesn't care. He's not going to play the game for their approval. And so Jesus, knowing what true purity of heart is, knowing what true cleanliness is, is not about to put on a show to get their approval. But it's interesting to think, too, at the same time, who has more clean hands than Jesus as he eats this meal? Who has a more pure heart? In Psalm 24, we're told this. It says, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? The question is, who shall approach God and dwell in God's presence? And the answer is given, he who has clean hands and a pure heart who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. See, Jesus is the one who has truly pure hands, clean hands and a pure heart. And yet in this interaction, you see that the Pharisee is astonished at the filth of his hands. And so Jesus responds in verses 39 to 40 and says this, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? Just picture what Jesus is saying for a moment. Imagine you go to your friend's house for dinner. You go to your neighbor's house for dinner and the bowls and the meal and the plates are all set out. But you look at your place and as you sit down, you realize that there's a bowl missing. And so your neighbor goes and they open up their dishwasher and you think they must have just washed the dishes. And as they open it up, you realize that there's grime and food scraps still in the dishwasher. And so you're like, oh, okay, maybe they're about to wash this dish for me. And they pull out the bowl and they bring it over to the table and they wash the outside of the bowl and put it down. And you look in it and you realize there's still food in there and it's still dirty except for the place where the dog licked it. And you might ask, could I have a clean bowl? And they, they might say, well, you know, I actually just cleaned the outside of that one for you. It's perfectly fine. Now, as we hear that, we know that's ridiculous. But that's actually what Jesus is saying. He's saying, listen, you Pharisees, you're, you're all about the outside. You, you have the clean exterior. But inside your heart, 
says there's greed and wickedness. There's greed and wickedness. But he says, doesn't, doesn't the God who made both, outside and inside, doesn't he actually care about both? And so this is what Jesus commands in verse 41 to them as, as he addresses the Pharisees. He says this, but give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. Give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. Now, alms would be like charitable giving, care for the poor. And so it seems like Jesus is saying something like this. It's a bit of a complex text, but it seems like he's saying something like this. You Pharisees, you're all about the outside. You're all about the ceremonial hand washing. You're all about this cleanliness on the outside. But if you want to know what true righteousness looks like before God, then do this. Give from your heart. Give of yourself to the poor. And if you do that, you don't have to worry about what's clean and unclean to this details that you are. Just know the whole world will be clean to you. If you start from the heart, if you give from the heart to the poor, if you care for true justice and righteousness, all things are clean for you. And so you begin to see this competing view of righteousness. You have one which is an external, outside righteousness of the Pharisees and religious leaders. Then you have the true righteousness of Christ, pure from the heart and out. And you begin to see that these are going to clash. There's going to be a clash between these two competing views of righteousness. And as this passage begins with a Pharisee astonished at the unrighteousness of Jesus, we then go into six woes in this passage, where Jesus is going to pronounce his judgment on the righteousness of the religious leaders. First with the Pharisees, who would have been experts in the law, and then the lawyers, who would have been those who really teach and are experts in the law in that way. So these Pharisees pride themselves in observing the law, the Mosaic law, and then these Religious leaders, these lawyers, are ones who would be the teachers of the law, who open and expound and explain. And Jesus is going to give his pronouncement, his judgment on them in return. Now, as we look at these, I think it's right to understand that there's a sense of judgment in Jesus' words. But there's also, I think, a sense of grief, a sense of sadness and frustration that he has over the hardness of the hearts of the people he's talking to. Their hearts are, are so hard towards God's word. And he's addressing, in many ways, these religious leaders who are leading people astray. And so what we'll do is we're going to look at what he says about their righteousness, and we're going to compare that with the righteousness of Jesus as we go through each one of these. So first we'll begin with the Pharisees. In verse 42, he says this. He says, but woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So these Pharisees are paying scrupulous attention, great attention to the way that they tithe. They give a tenth of all their herbs. And Jesus doesn't say that it's wrong for them to do that. He says, these you ought to have done without neglecting the others. What have they neglected? Justice and the love of God. It's almost like this. If, if you imagine yourself driving and you're so focused on the speedometer and you're so afraid of going over 45 miles an hour that you just stare at the speedometer while you drive, but you don't look at the road and you end up crashing. It's almost like in that way, he's saying, you've missed the bigger point. The speed limit is supposed to keep you safe. 
You're missing the bigger point. You, you've neglected God's law. You've focused on this tithing of these tenths of all your herbs. You've gone above and beyond, but you've forgotten the very heart of God and his law, which is justice and love. Now consider the ministry of Jesus, though. Jesus in Matthew 5, 17 to 18 says this. He says, you know, don't think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I didn't come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And he tells us that not a dot, not an iota will pass away from the law. Not the smallest amount of the law will pass away until all of it is accomplished. So here's Jesus. And he's approaching those who, have tri- who are tithing mint and dill and forgetting the true heart of the law. And here's Jesus who's fulfilling the law to the dot, to the iota. And yet he is the one who is actually truly from his heart seeking true justice who's truly honoring and loving his father in heaven and loving those who are around him. And you see this throughout the life and the ministry of Jesus, that he cares for the poor, that he heals the sick, and that he'll heal on the Sabbath, which is something that will provoke this outrage by many of the religious leaders. But he's seeking true justice and love throughout his life, always honoring his father and always seeking the good of those who are around him. Now, as Christians today, I don't think that a lot of our temptation is to spend too much time tithing our herbs. Probably not where we're going to struggle. But I think the principle that we can take from this is this, that it's possible to have spiritual activity, to look spiritually busy, while at the same time to miss the very heart of God. For us to be focused on all sorts of activities and, and programs, which, which have a great place and can be very good. But, but to miss, to miss the very heart of God and what he's called us to be as his people. Is, is it not a danger, even for us as people who love the word of God, to think if, if we just get our theology right, if we, if we get every detail right, and we, we love the study of the word of God, we get everything together, we, we get all these details right, but to begin to forget what that's actually called supposed to call us to. That that God's word is supposed to lead us to this love for others. It's this holistic love of God that support out into justice and love and mercy from his people. What what does God desire of us? What does he require of us? To walk humbly with him, to seek justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with our God. And so I think Jesus does does a good job of reminding us even this morning that as his people, that we never want to substitute spiritual activity for truly knowing and walking with God in this heart. So the second woe he gives is verse 43 to the Pharisees. He says, woe to you Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Now these Pharisees love the approval of people. And they love having this prestigious position that allows them to be put forward as those who receive the praise of man. Yet, Consider Jesus. Jesus throughout his life is known as someone who is constantly rejected. And he rejects the vain glory of man. He, he avoids worldly power. And he's grieved. We see this in this passage. He's actually grieved over the idea of religious leaders taking their position as a means of self-promotion. You could say he's opposed to the idea of being a celebrity rabbi. And the third woe then, as he's addressing those who are taking their position, they're getting the approval of people, as as they're neglecting his law, he says this, he says, woe to you, 
For you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. Now, Jesus is really laying it out here, but there's a little bit of context that helps us understand what he's saying. He's calling them unmarked graves, which would be graves that are not marked. There's another practice where you would whitewash a grave. So you whitewash a grave means that you make it really clear where a grave is. And this is important for Jews, because if you were to walk over a grave unknowingly, it would make you ceremonially unclean, which would keep you from entering into the congregation of worship. And it would, this, this cleanliness is a, a large theme of this passage. And so for him to say, you're unmarked graves, think about what he's saying. You're these religious leaders claiming to be the ones who are holy and clean and righteous, and who would be spreading the righteousness of God, spreading the cleanliness of God through your teaching and lifestyle. But he says this, when people come into contact with you, they're unknowingly defiled by your life and teaching. This is, this is a strong word that Jesus has for them. You begin to see that, that Jesus is truly angry. And we'll, we'll talk about that. Why, why is Jesus so angry? We're going we're to see the anger of Jesus in this passage. But just think for a moment the difference between Christ and these religious leaders. What happens when people come into contact with Christ? The unclean come into contact with him. The lepers who would have been cast out, they become clean. The sinful, who, who in their hearts are unclean, come into contact with him. Their sins are forgiven. As these religious leaders are proclaiming that they are the ones who are clean and holy and righteous, yet they're defiling through their teaching. Christ is here as the one who has truly come to heal the people and to spread righteousness and holiness, spreading out through him in his life. Now, one of the lawyers, when he hears this teaching, takes offense. And he says this in verse 45, teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. Now, some of the Pharisees would have likely been lawyers as well. And so you could have been a lawyer and a Pharisee. But he's saying, you're, you're insulting us also when you say these things, Jesus. And you notice Jesus doesn't say, oh, man, I had, I had no idea. I never meant to offend anyone. But he says, okay, l- let's talk. Let's talk, lawyers. Let's talk as well. And so then he gives his three woes to them. He says in verse 46, woe to you, lawyers, also. For you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. So the religious leaders had begun to add laws on top of God's law. So you have God's law, which is perfect and holy and righteousness, and his commands are not burdensome, it tells us in 1 John. But they had begun to add burden and expectation upon expectation. In Mark 7, we actually get a bit of an insight into this. Mark 7 says this, For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. That that word is so important there, the tradition of the elders. Not the word of God, but the tradition of man added upon the word of God. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. So they had added these laws. They had added these expectations. If you, if you really want to be a clean person, if you really want to be a righteous person before God, this is the life that you should live. And Jesus looks at these and he says, these are just traditions of man. These aren't the word of God. And you've added all these burdens, he says to the Lord. You've added these burdens upon burdens upon people. But he says, you don't even lift one of your fingers, which could mean one of two things. 
It's like he's, there's someone stacking a burden on them, but they're saying, I'm not going to help you with it. Or the other thing it could be is that they put all these burdens on people, but they do their old lawyer loop around. And they find a way that they say, yeah, you know, th these are all the things that you should do. But as an expert in the law, they find some way that they don't have to do it. They work as a corrupt lawyer in this sense, not a righteous lawyer, not a righteous teacher of the law. You just think of how different this is than Jesus's heart and desire for his people. We get an insight into this in Matthew 11. This is what Jesus says that his desire for his people is. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Why is Jesus angry? Because he sees burden upon burden being placed on the people. When his heart for his people, as one who is gentle and lowly in heart, his heart for his people is rest for their souls. I just think even this morning, what does Jesus want for us? Like, there's much that we can come in with on a morning like this and to know who our Savior is. He's actually someone who desires rest for our souls. And sometimes we can view Jesus almost like we view these religious leaders. That if, if I follow Jesus, I'm going to miss out. He's going to add burden and expectation. It's going to be frustrating. But actually, the very heart of Christ for his people is rest for your soul. He desires your salvation. He desires your well-being. And we see his anger in this passage because he's actually the one who's fighting for your freedom in him. He's upset about the idea of someone adding burden and expectation that are not from God's word. Now, to be clear, this doesn't mean that as Christians, we have no laws that we follow. But God's laws for his people are not burdensome. They're, they're actually fundamentally a blessing to his people. And what Christ desires for his people is their salvation, their rest, and their well-being. And so he gives a second woe in verses 47 to 51. He says, woe to you, to the lawyers, for you build the tombs of, your prof of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you, are and you consent to the deeds of your fathers. For they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore, also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel, to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Now what Jesus is calling these lawyers out for here is essentially virtue signaling. Saying one thing, saying they value one thing, but their hearts are really not there. They, they say, we love to hear the word of God. We love the spokesmen on behalf of God. We love the prophets, those who speak from God on our behalf. But Jesus says, that's not true. Your forefathers killed the prophets. And if you were alive in their time, he says, you would have killed them too. And do you know why you build the tombs of the prophets? Because they're dead. And your forefathers killed them. You're complicit in it with them. And they're going to show themselves to be truly sons of their, their forefathers because like their forefathers, they're going to reject the message of God given to them. Here's Christ 
Christ is the one who all the prophets from beginning of end of scriptures have been pointing us to and bringing us to. Jesus talks about the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, sort of an A to Z going on here. That's the English alphabet. Um, but you have Abel, who would have been the first martyr in scripture in Genesis 4, killed by his blood, brother Cain. So righteous Abel killed. Then you have Zechariah, who's in 2 Chronicles 24, a priest who speaks on behalf of God and is killed. And in the Hebrew scriptures, the scriptures as they would have been aligned for Jesus and his contemporaries who held to the full Hebrew canon, the Hebrew scriptures, 2 Chronicles would have been the last book. So it's like Jesus is saying from beginning to end, you've rejected God's word. And here is Jesus, the one who they've spoken of and proclaimed, and they are rejecting him in this place. They're hearing and hardening their hearts towards him. The one the prophets have spoken to in the fullest revelation of God. And so in verse 52, he says this, Woe to you lawyers, if you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you have hindered, hindered those who were entering. So here they are, teachers of the law. As teachers of the law, those with the word of God, this is what they should have done. They should have opened the kingdom wide. Anyone who would believe and receive could come in. They should have made clear the truth and the hope of God's kingdom. But rather than that, Jesus says, you've obscured it. You, you have the key, but you've hidden it. And, and the irony, the sadness is that they themselves aren't even in the kingdom, but they would keep others from entering into the kingdom. They contrast that with Jesus one more time. Who is Jesus? He is the way. He is the truth. He's the life. He's the way into the kingdom. And when he comes in his life and his ministry, he proclaims the kingdom is at hand. He opens wide the gates. He teaches in parables, which for many are mysterious, but for those whose hearts are opened, the parables open the kingdom of God to them. He's known as someone who's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Someone who associates and opens and invites people into the kingdom of God. And I just, I just think about that phrase. Jesus, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Jesus, a friend of sinners. How incredible is it that when God stepped into our world, when the Son of God came into the world, that he was marked and identified as a friend of sinners. Because is there any better news for us this morning than that? That Jesus is a friend of sinners. That he identifies with us. He'll go all the way to the cross to save his people. I think how incredible would it be for us to be known as that? Isn't that what we want our church to be? When people come in, whatever they believe, whatever background, whatever they may be wearing, whatever it might be, we just say, there is hope for you. There is love for you. There's, there's this invitation that if you would come to Christ, you'd be saved. The kingdom being wide open for anyone who would come in because Christ was a friend of sinners and that's who we want to be. And as we go out, as we go into our workplaces, as we go into our neighborhoods, as we go and spend time with our family, we want to be known as those who are friends of sinners, to be like our Lord in that way, to show the grace that he's shown to us. And he calls out these lawyers because they've shut the kingdom in people's faces. So how do the Pharisees and lawyers respond? It's a hard teaching. Verses 53 to 54 shows us their response. 
says, as he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. As they hear from Jesus and they go out, they conspire. They want to trap him. They want to catch him in something that he would say so that they can put him away. And in the final verdict, you see that they are like children of their forefathers who rejected the word of God and killed the prophets because they'll reject Christ. But consider for a moment, what would a repentance looked like for them? Here they are. They've built up this image of what their righteousness is. They're living this lifestyle of, of profiting off their status and their reputation, loving money. What would a repentance in this moment look like? I think it would have looked like this, to realize what Jesus was saying was true. That their own facade of righteousness was a sham. That, that what they really needed was to repent and to know the Savior. And if they would have done that, we know Christ. He would have been gracious and merciful to them. But what we see in this passage is a truth that we see throughout Scripture, that is that God opposes the proud and he gives grace to the humble. So as we read a passage like this, we find ourselves either in the place of the proud or the humble. How do we respond as we consider Christ and his words? Do we say, Jesus, you know, I actually don't really need you. My life is fine. My career is fine. My, my, my family, whatever it might be, things are fine. I actually don't need you, Jesus. You're, you're not the solution and the hope that I need in my life right now. Do, do we push back because we say, you know, I'm actually righteous, Jesus. I don't need to be called out for my unrighteousness. I don't need some other righteousness or some other savior to come in and make things right. I'm actually a pretty good person. I was talking to my brother, Doug, about this passage. And one of the things that he said that I thought was really helpful was that if we're going to have our own system of righteousness that allows us to look down on other people and to sort of feel good about ourselves while we do so, that it's going to have to be about something as silly and trite as hand-washing. Some small thing where we say, you know, I can evaluate myself according to the way I've washed my hands, the way I've done these things, and at least I'm not, at least I'm not like those people. You know, I, uh, I recycle. I reduce, reuse, and recycle, the big three, you know? I'm actually a pretty good guy. I don't, I don't need someone to tell me what righteousness is. When they asked me to round up to the nearest dollar, I did. I gave that 23 cents. I'm a generous person. You know, I, I clean up after my dog. Or I vote the right way. You know, I, I'm on the right side of history. I'm not like those people. There's this, the unrighteous people over there, but at least I'm not one of them, right? Or I got the vaccine. Or I didn't get the vaccine. You know, whatever it is, like we, we just build all these badges that we try and present. I am the righteous person. I am the good person. And we can so easily look down on others. All these small things, we can begin to build ourselves up and say, I'm not like these people. But the truth is, at the end of the day, what do we all need? We need a savior. And the danger is that we would condemn other people to justify ourselves. 
mean, don't we see this in our culture? We condemn, we put down other people to justify ourselves. Isn't this a danger for us in the church? That we, that we say we're not like that. We're better. And the ultimate danger is that we actually condemn Christ to justify ourselves. Rejecting his righteousness for our own. And so we see in this passage that Christ is opposed to the proud, but to the humble. Who is he to the humble? He is gracious and merciful and a protector. Like the Apostle Paul in his life, he had all these accolades. He had these religious accolades built up. He had his social standing. But he comes to this point in his life where looking at his ethnic heritage, his religious background, his family, all these things, he says it's nothing. That's nothing compared to knowing Christ and having a righteousness that is found in him. See, that, that's the humility, coming to know that we need Jesus Christ who came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst, as the Apostle Paul says. And yet knowing that he's given grace and kindness. And when we come to Christ like that, when we humble ourselves, we know who he is for us. He is a savior. He saves his people. He, he deals with their unrighteousness. No matter what it may be, he gives us his own righteousness in our place. And he saves his people going all the way to the cross for his people. And he becomes a defender of his people. One thing we saw in this passage is Jesus is angry. You know, Jesus is. He's calling out these religious leaders. And there's an author and scholar, Dane Ortland, when he's commenting on a similar passage in Matthew 23, he makes a really helpful point about why Jesus is so angry. He says this, talking about these religious PhDs, these religious leaders who were supposed to be leading the people, he says this, they wished to use the people to build themselves up. Jesus wanted to gather the people under his wings, the way a mother hen gathers her chicks under her wings for maternal protection. So who is Jesus? He's the one who wants to gather together his people. Why is he angry? Because he sees the people being abused and neglected by religious leaders. You know, as we read this text, we find ourselves either as those who in our pride are opposed or in our humility with Christ are defended. And for those who humble themselves, those who know Christ as their savior, he is, he is a fierce protector. And one of the things that actually the anger of Jesus in this passage shows us is the extent of his love. Because if Jesus wasn't truly angry at injustice and neglect and abuse, he wouldn't be full of love in the way that we need a savior to actually be full of love. And we know this. When we, we think about a mom or a dad defending their child, you could have the most tender and gentle mother. But if she's defending her child, she goes into mama bear mode and a fierce protector. And what do we see in Christ here? We see the one who wishes to gather his people together. We see the good shepherd who defends his sheep from the wolves and cares for his people. So one thing we see in this passage, we see the, the intense passion of Christ's love for his people, that he would go against anyone who would abuse, neglect, or hurt his people. And so I just want to say, may, maybe that's in your own life. Maybe you've been in a spot where you have been abused by spiritual authority. Even those claiming to be Christian have abused or mistreated you. What we know from this passage is that Jesus sees and he cares and he's not indifferent. And in the final verdict, he will make all things right. 
There will be nothing hidden that won't be revealed. And so it puts us in the spot where we can trust in Jesus. We actually see the trustworthiness of Jesus in this passage. And remember, what's in the background of Luke? In the background of Luke is Jesus is having this dispute, is he's having this confrontation as the cross. This is Jesus who loves and cares and defends his people. And he's actually going to go all the way to the cross to do that. He's going to give up his life. He's going to spill out his blood. So we put it all in that context and we see that Christ loves his people fiercely. He's after our well-being. He is jealous for his people. And to the humble, he shows grace upon grace and protection and care. In a moment today, we're going to take communion. And it's that truth that we're reminded of, that Jesus Christ gave up his life. His blood was poured out. His body was given for the salvation of his people and in love. We're going to pray and then we'll take communion. If you're helping with communion, would you mind coming forward? Lord, we thank you for your mercy and your goodness to us. We thank you that you love and defend your people and you provide for us according to our needs. We thank you that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And I pray that you'd give us humility and that we would see and know your grace and mercy this morning. Praise things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we take communion,